prayer as we look to God to speak to us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call upon you as our Father, as a uh, people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that, uh, that all who are here this morning, if they do not call upon you as Father, can call upon you as Father as you have provided the way that deals with that separation between mankind and God through Jesus' death and resurrection. Lord, we thank you that as we have record in your word of the things that the early Christians did, we pray that we might be encouraged by them, that we might be built up in our understanding of who you are and how we relate to you and how we relate to one another. By uh, your spirit, work through me and work in all of us to make us more like your son, Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. When you're a child, you listen to what your mum and dad says and there's those beautiful moments that every parent's highlight when kids just do what their parents ask them to do without questioning it. Now, some kids do that for a shorter period of time. Some do it for a really long period of time of when all the other parents get jealous of. But even often the best of kids will often go through a phase, whether short or long, where they start thinking, I think there's other ideas out there. I'm going to play the market a little bit. Whether it's peer pressure or their own desires, sometimes they start listening to other voices and seeing if there's some better options available. To give an example, a parent might say to their child, you can play with your friends after school as long as you tidy up your room first. And initially the kid might think, yeah, that's a, that's a fair deal, I'll clean up my room and then if we, there's something going on, we'll go out and do that. And all goes according to plan until that friend after school has a really, really good idea of something to do then what was once a, something you were happily doing in obedience to the requests of your mum and dad becomes that the room can wait. Something better, another option has come up before us. In many ways, it's what the first humans, Adam and Eve, did. Not that God asked them to clean up their room and they took up another option. But they had enjoyed the blessing of living in perfect relationship with God and seeing all the joy that comes from living in humble obedience under him. Until Satan comes along in the form of a serpent and says, you know that tree that God says you shouldn't eat from? You're not going to die. And the Bible says they looked at it, this tree which God said not to eat from. They saw it look good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. And as they weighed up the options, they thought, I think it's actually better to listen to what Satan has to say here than what God, who has been good to us up until now, has had to say. And that's how sin came into the world. Now you might think, why would I introduce a sermon in a Bible passage like this in this way? Well, it's because people are actually divided as to regards to this passage. Was Paul's desire to go to Jerusalem, was that faithful obedience... Or was it stubborn disobedience? And one of the reasons why they're divided is you read through this chapter as well as the chapter which comes beforehand, it appears on the surface 
that the Holy Spirit is giving conflicting messages about whether or not it is God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. Now, rightly, you should be thinking straight away, that doesn't sit or sound right. If the Holy Spirit is indeed God, surely he's not going to contradict himself. And I don't believe he ever does. But there are certainly times when we misinterpret what he gives to us. So as we look through this passage, and also briefly from the passage beforehand, we look, what does the Holy Spirit said so far? Is there a contradictory message in the first six verses? Then there's another word as we finish off. And then what do we do with what appears on the surface to be mixed messages? One of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible is that it helps you to read things in their context. Because I would imagine if you just start picked up and thought, I'm going to read Acts chapter 21, you would possibly come to a different conclusion about whether or not it was the will of God for Paul to go to Jerusalem. But in the chapter it just gone beforehand, where Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders in his final address to them, Regarding Jerusalem, this is what he said in verses 22 to 23 of the previous chapter. He says, Now I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So there are two elements which Paul declares regarding the Holy Spirit and Jerusalem. He declares, I am constrained by the Holy Spirit to go there. Or in other language, the Holy Spirit has given me no option. This is where I must go. And while Paul doesn't know all of the ins and outs of why and what will happen there, one thing which the Holy Spirit has made plain to him is that in every city in which he goes to, there will be imprisonment and there will be affliction. So there's no doubt whether it's the will of God at this stage for Paul to go to Jerusalem. There is no doubt that it is the will of God and the plan of God that he will suffer when he gets there. That becomes necessary background information for reading the passage we're looking at. But even still, it's going to be difficult at times to read particular verses. Because if it appears the Holy Spirit's sending Paul to Jerusalem... He seems to discourage it as we get to chapter 21. After some travel by sea, both Paul and those who were with him, which includes Luke, they arrive in Tyre. And as they sort out the Christians there, or as this passage calls them, the disciples, and because all Christians are disciples, that is, those who are learning Christ and learning to become like Christ. And while they're there... It appears that a message spoken to Paul through the Spirit says completely the opposite. The Christians entire, through the Holy Spirit, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, some people would say, because this just says the Spirit, that this is coming from their own spirit, this is their own thoughts, their own perspective, but that would seem a little bit of an odd way to write this verse. So, are things contradicting each other here? 
Would the Holy Spirit really say one thing to Paul, say, you've got no option, you must go here, and then reveal a message through someone else, don't go there. Has either Paul or the Christians in Tyre wrongly accredited this message as coming from the Holy Spirit? Should we think the Holy Spirit wants Paul to go to Jerusalem or not? The one thing we have no clue about is how Paul responded to hearing this message. Because to Paul, that would have sounded quite odd, wouldn't it? He was so adamant that the Holy Spirit had declared to him, you are going, this is where you're going, without doubt. And now he has some Christians saying, no, the Holy Spirit says, don't go there. Whatever happened, it didn't strain their relationships. They, along with their families and the children, they accompanied Paul to the boat where they farewelled him and just like he did with the Ephesian elders, Paul concludes his time with them by praying with them and for them. Think maybe now we'll get some further clarity on God's leading and will for Paul. As we get to verses 7 to 16, we see yet another word from the Holy Spirit. Now, after a bit more travel... Paul and his company, including Luke, arrive at Caesarea and they stay with Philip the Evangelist. Now, Philip, we've seen it a couple of times already in the book of Acts in chapter 6 and in chapter 8, we see Philip stand up and declare the gospel and people respond as they hear the message proclaimed about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. But one of the reasons why I think he's identified specifically as Philip the Evangelist is to make the distinction that Philip the Evangelist and Philip the Apostle are not the same person. Why do I say they're not the same person? Well, this Philip here is the Evangelist who's specifically described as being one of the seven. That means one of the seven who, back in Acts chapter 6, were chosen to wait on tables. To bring your mind back to there, because it was a long time since we looked at Acts chapter 6, And the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, summoned together the full number of the disciples, says, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. So the apostle says, it is not right that the apostles should give up preaching the word to serve on tables. So it would make no sense if the apostles think they shouldn't be serving on tables to appoint an apostle to serve on the tables. So this Philip is the one who was chosen alongside Stephen, was not an apostle, but who often gets referred to as Philip the Evangelist. Now this Philip also had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's all it says about them. It never records anywhere in scriptures what they prophesied, anything in particular they said. It's common you'll hear people say that if someone prophesies, That must be the word of God. It must therefore belong in in scripture. Therefore prophecy should not exist today. But not only is there no record in scripture of the prophetic accounts of Philip's daughters, there's lots of times the Bible speaks about someone who prophesied without recording the content of that. It's also worth noting that the New Testament gift of prophecy is very different than the Old Testament. In the New Testament, on a couple of occasions, Paul reminds them that prophetic messages must be tested, they must be weighed. 
He doesn't just say, just take them on board instantly as though they're the word of God. And even though there's no mention of what they said, there is mention of what another prophet who comes on the scene says. Agabus, who we'd seen back in chapter 11, who prophesied that a famine would come upon the land, which happened during the time of Claudius, this time uses a method, a little bit like Isaiah and Jeremiah, where he not only speaks a message, but he begins to act it out. When he came to us, that is, Paul and those gathered with him, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. And I'd advise you from using that phrase. That would be a bad phrase for us to use. But he killed. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So if you were a little bit confused up until now, it might have just got that little bit more confusing. Here is this man, Agabus, who says, the Holy Spirit says this, and I said, not wise words for Christians to use, but in his case he had the right to do so. This Paul in Jerusalem will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. Now, do you believe the Holy Spirit is saying that Paul shouldn't go there because it's going to end up bad? Or is he declaring this is what will happen and this is what it's going to look like? Because evidently Luke and the others think this is not good. They urged Paul not to go there. But if Paul didn't go there, then that would mean that something that the Holy Spirit said would take place didn't take place. It would mean that what the Holy Spirit said would be false. Something which we should not be comfortable with. Now some think Paul's response is a sign of his stubbornness. He said, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. And because they couldn't persuade him otherwise, they went along with him to Jerusalem. So what do you think? We've seen various different messages. We've heard some people hear the words and think, no, don't go there. Is Paul being faithful and obedient? Or is he being stubborn and disobedient? Are the messages coming from the Holy Spirit conflicting one another, contradicting one another? Or are they united? How do we make sense of the mixed messages? Now, I kind of put them all together on one slide. This is not the direct quotes from the passage, but the summary of the content of them. In chapter 20, Paul says, I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And I know that there will be imprisonment and affliction when I get there. But in chapter 21, verse 4, the the Christians from Tyre tell Paul, through the Spirit, not to go there. And then Agabus says, the Holy Spirit says, you will be bound and delivered to the Gentiles when you go there. 
We've got no reason to believe on any of those occasions that it's not the Holy Spirit. Would the Holy Spirit give a conflicting message? I don't think so. That would seem to be contrary to the nature of God. So how do we make sense of his leading and his will for Paul in this passage? The first one's pretty clear, isn't it? That one back in chapter 20, that's really clear. Holy Spirit has constrained me to go to Jerusalem where I will face affliction and imprisonment. The last one seems to affirm the same thing. Agabus, what he says, when you go there, you'll be bound, you'll be handed over to the Gentiles. But what do we do with the message from the Christians in Tyre who say through the Spirit, don't go there? That seems to be completely the opposite. Why would they do that? I think it's pretty similar to the way in which Luke and the others responded to the message of Agabus. They hear that Paul, when he goes there, is going to be bound and handed over to Gentiles and they think, that's not good. It must be God's will for him not to go there if that's the sort of thing that's going to happen. And so they conclude it was best for Paul not to go. I think it's really likely that the Christians in Tyre received something from the Holy Spirit that indicated if Paul went to Jerusalem, there would be affliction and imprisonment. And so they interpret that message as a message say, tell him not to go there. Certainly a message which comes from God in any sense must be without error, must be infallible. So they've received an infallible message from the Spirit, but it appears they've interpreted and applied that with error. And I think the New Testament anticipates there will be times when people who receive insights from the Holy Spirit will get it wrong. When Paul speaks of the New Testament gift of prophecy, he says, test it. Look at 1 Corinthians Thessalonians chapter 5. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but, which is going back in contrast to what he's just said, so instead of despising prophecies, test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Or as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh up what is said. Like he says in chapter 5, Weigh it up because it will either be good or it will be evil. Chapter 14 of Corinthians, weigh what is said. If prophecy is a message from God, why would it need to be weighed up? I think there's two clear reasons why. One is there will be people who think they've heard something from God who have not heard something from God. Secondly, there may be somebody who has heard something from God and heard it right, but interpreted and applied it in a way inconsistent as why it was given, as was potentially the case there of the Christians in Tyre. And there's some very real dangers for hearers to believe and to hear something as being from God if it is not. It's not something you toy around with as though it's a bit of fun. 
Hence why I said beforehand, it is really foolish for any Christian to say, this is what God says, unless they are quoting from the Bible. Because once you say, this is what God says, it is not open to be questioned. And Paul is abundantly clear when he speaks about prophetic messages, he says, it must be tested, it must be weighed. And especially testing it in line with what God has definitely said. If something does not agree with what God has already said or it says something beyond what God has already said, it is not a message from God. Guaranteed. I've heard people use the expression God said in such a way that even a new Christian who's read one gospel and one other New Testament book would say, God didn't say that. You're out of your mind. And I would encourage all Christians, regardless of where you stand on, whether this exists today or not, focus on what God has said, what we know is definitely from God in the Bible, that is every single word of it is the word of God. So often we see people so excited about what possibly might be said from God and they haven't come to know what God has already said. Get to know what God has said, not only because that's definite, but you've got no means of being able to weigh any other claims if you haven't understood what God has already said. Even though a prophetic message might be interpreted and applied in a way which is wrong. Same goes for someone who has the gift of teaching. It's not that the Bible's in error, but many preachers, including myself, are subject to saying things which are wrong. And they should be weighed up. They should be tested. So what? What to do with a difficult and confusing passage? The application is definitely not... Definitely not, it doesn't matter if you get prophecy wrong, so have a crack. That's definitely not the application. I couldn't think of a worse application. And I can guarantee you that's not why Luke has recorded this account. But also remember Paul's word to the Thessalonians. He said, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. And then he puts them into two categories. He says, Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now, I want that warning to be taken very seriously. That prophecy is not something you play around as though it's something new and exciting. To misinterpret something or to speak presumptuously, God doesn't just say that's a minor whoops, He says that is evil. You do not play around with it. But there are two key points I do want to make. One is there are some close parallels between Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and Paul. In both cases, when they come to the realisation that this is where I am headed, they are resolute, nothing is shifting them off the path of moving towards Jerusalem. Both cases Both Jesus and Paul are aware that when they go to Jerusalem, they are going to suffer. 
In both cases, both Jesus and Paul, those closest to them discouraged them from going there. Remember, Peter, he says, may it never be when Jesus outlines his plan of salvation that he would suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Those closest to both Jesus and Paul persuade them otherwise, saying, we don't want harm to happen to you. Paul's certainly not going to Jerusalem to die as a substitute for sinners. You don't want to make the connection that closely. But there's certainly an extent to which Paul followed in his master's footsteps. But secondly, God's will is always good, but God's will is not always easy and comfortable. For by Jesus and Paul, going to Jerusalem meant affliction. They were discouraged from people from going there for that reason. Even in today's passage, those Christians in Tyre, as well as Luke and those others around Paul, presumed that it was probably best for Paul not to go there if it was going to get tough, if it was going to get difficult. Yet they received the exact same insight that Paul himself received and chose to go there, knowing that faithful obedience would lead to hardship that must be endured. Now, I've encountered a number of people in my Christian life who will just flat out say that hardship is never God's will. Really? God doesn't want anything difficult to happen in our life? I've heard people who are praying about a situation and until they get an answer that makes that situation happier and better, they think that God hasn't answered them. Really? God doesn't plan or doesn't allow or it's never part of his will that we would go through difficult things? Was Jesus' death on a cross not God's will because it was hard and unpleasant? You've got to be kidding. Was the central plan of God's salvation something that wasn't God's will? Of course it was. And what will you do with something like 1 Peter 4.9? When it says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's not a common expression, is it? Those who suffer according to God's will. Now, I'm not going to take some morbid line that as a Christian, our life just should be marked with pursuing suffering as though somehow you're more godly the more you suffer. I've certainly seen strands that kind of think that it's good to pursue suffering and I don't think that's the message given. Christianity will include suffering. It'll include all sorts of wonderful blessings as we follow Jesus Christ as well. But if you enter into the Christian life presuming that as a Christian you will never go through hardship, you will never suffer, everything will work out sweet, you are in for a rude shock. Because Jesus promised that in this life you will have trouble. God's will is always good, but it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy pleasant and nice. I don't think Jesus was there on the cross thinking, oh, how wonderful is this? This is, a, this is the best day of my life. Yet the writer of the Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He faithfully endured the suffering, knowing that in the good plan of God, this thing which seems hard 
and really unattractive is going to produce something good that is worth sticking with. Even outside of the Christian world, we all know people who have been through really deep, tough things who will look back upon that hard experience and say, it wasn't fun, but I'm glad I did it. And because of this, this has now happened. Imagine if Jesus had listened to Peter when Peter said, may it never be, when Jesus spoke about his suffering and his resurrection. By all means, pray for things to get better, pray for healing, pray for relief, pray for help. But be willing to acknowledge that sometimes the answer might be the one that you're looking for, but sometimes the answer might be, my grace is sufficient for you as the answer was given to Paul when he prayed repeatedly that the thorn of the flesh might be removed from him. Pray that God, if this is your will, help me to trust and be obedient to you in the middle of what's happening because I trust. I belong to a God who is perfect, who is good, who everything that he gives is good and beneficial. And the God who has chosen me before the foundation of the world with a distinct purpose to make me more like his son so that we can trust him when we go through good things. We can trust that even in the middle of the hardest thing we've ever been through in our life that God can and God is at work to work about his good purposes in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Uh, We thank you that you are good in all that you do, in all that you say, and in all of your dealings with your people. Lord, help us and keep us from being proud and presuming that we should dictate to you what you should do in any situation. Keep us from foolish words where we may be inclined to Say this is what God said just based on a presumption we have. Lord, help us to be a people who are diligent in knowing what you have definitely said as recorded in the scriptures. Maybe you be a people of your word. Maybe we be a people who follow you in obedience even when that takes us down pathways of discomfort, pain and trial we might proclaim that we belong to a God who is good and loving and who provides us hope not only in the good days but hope right in the middle of suffering. We thank you that our salvation was secured through the suffering of Jesus Christ who rose again and even the things which we endure in this life, this light momentary affliction are working for us an eternal weight of glory with you. Thank you for who you are and for what you are doing in us. In Jesus' name, amen.